Galatians, excuse me, Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, as we continue on in our story of Abram, at this point in our story, he has not yet had a name change to Abraham. And we see early here in, this, in Abraham's journey that it's a journey of faith. Early part of the chapter, we, we, we saw that Abraham stepped out in faith to go to a land of promise. He left Haran, didn't know for sure where he was going to end up, how long it was going to take to get there, yet he depended upon God to lead him to that land that God had promised him. And, this, and therefore, Abraham's journey is, becomes a journey of faith. And Abraham is viewed in the Scriptures as the father of the faith. He's an example of the faith. He's mentioned in Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Fame of Faith. And yet, as we get to the last half of this chapter, we find that Abraham experiences a lapse in faith. We find some bad decisions made outside of the will of God. And it displays for us that decisions that may often seem logical or reasonable to us at the time, when, when done apart from prayer and dependence upon God, when emanating from the flesh, often produce disastrous results. And it's a reminder that God has to give us over and over and over again that he who sows of the flesh reaps corruption. Galatians 6, 8. And that's what this is about in Abraham's journey of faith. He had seen on one hand God's great power and faithfulness to lead him to the land of promise, and yet shortly thereafter we find here in this chapter the um, bad decisions that are made as Abraham does not walk by faith at this point. So let's go ahead and read this passage and see what God has to say to us this morning. Chapter 12, verse 10 says, Now there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you, that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say you are my sister, that it might be well with me for your sake, and that I might live because of you. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated well, Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him that they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Well, Abraham, here in his chapter, runs into another test of faith, does he not? We had seen that he's, his first test was was at least that recorded for us, is that when he arrived in the promised land, he found that it was inhabited. The Canaanites were still in the land. And the land wasn't wide open and ready for him to habitate. It was, it was, it was habitated. I mean, how in the world was this, they, they're going to be willingly give their land and, and buildings and wells and all that over to Abram. And, and yet here we find a second test in verse 10, a famine. Another test of faith. And that's serious, isn't it? And there's a genuine fear at the, in, in Abram's life here, fear of hunger, lack of supply of basic needs. And, you know, when we really evaluate it, that's life. 
Life is made up of tests and trials day after day after day, isn't it? But the reality is, of it is, is God uses those tests, those trials, to grow us, as we read in 1 Peter 1 today, the, the development of our faith, the growth of our faith. And God prefers that you and I respond in these trials by faith. We look to Him in those challenges of life. And we find when we do, we find He is faithful. We find His Word is reliable. And you find that God is able to keep the promises that He made to us. And God wants to prove that to us, yet we forget so quickly when the pressure's on, don't we? The flesh response, the other response to trials, a lack of faith response to our trials is trusting in our own wisdom and cunning and our ability to keep ourselves and preserve ourselves. And God use, uses even those failures to help us to see, see the frailty of our flesh. The inability of man to run his own life. The, f the foolishness of directing our own steps. And, and so even in our failures, God wants us to see that we just can't cut it on our own. That we need help. We need divine guidance and help to prevent our flesh from taking us in the wrong direction because the flesh always reaps corruption. It may not show immediately in our lives. But when we operate outside the will of God, outside of faith in God's Word and God's Spirit, if we operate in the flesh in our own wisdom, it's going to lead to destruction. It's going to lead to corruption. And our loving Heavenly Father wants to keep us from that, just like any parent would. He wants to keep us from destroying ourselves and, and getting ourselves into trouble. And thus, He allows these trials to teach us both His faithfulness and our futility. What's also interesting to observe, and I think we see that here, is that Tests and trials often follow successes and victories, don't they? Isn't that the case? Often when there's a moment of victory, a success in our Christian lives, whether it's an area of growth, an area of ministry, often failures follow soon on his heels. The valley follows the mountaintop, you might say. And maybe it's because when the challenges pass, we relax and lose our focus on God. When things are going well, we don't have to depend upon his power and his, and his wisdom and His direction. And we return instead to a state of self-dependence and just live life like it naturally comes to us from the perspective of the flesh. You know, Abraham had just taken his tremendous journey of faith, left Haran with everything he had, going to where he didn't know where, just trusting God to lead and direct and fulfill the promises He had made to him. And yet so quickly, things changed. We go from a great testimony of faith in the first half of this chapter to the failures of the second half of the chapters. And there's that real tendency to spiritually relax after success and forget to keep the same first focus and dependent spirit on our God, to take our eyes off the Lord, as we would say. Now we have to ask ourselves, in verse 10, was it, was it right to go down to Egypt? The Bible doesn't really say either way here directly, does it? It doesn't directly say that it was a bad decision. Now, when we see the mindset of Abraham when he gets to Egypt, it, it, it costs, cast maybe some light on that decision. But what you don't see in this passage, and you often see this in the Old Testament, is God condemning his children when they didn't consult the Lord, when they didn't go to him in prayer, when they didn't wait upon God to say, go, just God had said when it was time to leave Ur. You don't see that. You don't see Ab Abram responding to God's direction. We don't see him going before the Lord here and saying, God, there's a famine in the land. What am I going to do? What should I do, Lord? He you don't see any of that. He just went. 
And it probably seemed rational because as he sat in his tent or the door of his tent, he probably saw all these caravans going by heading for Egypt. Everyone else is doing it. This is the, this is the way the world responds. This is what we got to do to survive with no view of God in their eyes. So he did what was rational. He, we do what, you know, and that's how we manage life, isn't it? Like everybody else does. Is that how the Christian lives? We just live like everybody else does? Take the world's perspectives and attitudes? We run our, our families, our businesses like the world does? Well, no, obviously not, is it? We're not to, and that's what Abram is to learn in this lesson. Because God should be in, in, in when the pressure is on and when it's not. God should be our first focus, and when the pressure is on, our first look, his word, our first consideration, and prayer, our first resource. That's what it should be, and that's what's absence here. Well, you might think, well, you know, what do you expect? Abram had to eat, had to provide for, you know, his, his caravan, his tribe. But what we don't see here is that Abram remembering that God had made him a promise. He was going to give him bounty and make him a blessing in this land of promise. He had forgotten that, didn't he? And that's what happens when we worry, fear, and fret for our lives, in our lives, when trials come. We forget the greatness of God, and that's what trials are meant to prove. If God promised to bring him to this land and to make him a great nation, could he not provide for him? Reminds me a couple of verses. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now God may have said, go to Egypt. We don't know if Abraham had prayed. But the point is, God can supply. He is able. I like this verse in Psalm 37, 25, which says, I have been young, and now I am old. I can identify that part of that verse. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. What a wonderful promise, isn't it? God cares for his own. He promises to provide for us. You know, those tests of faith always seem to occur in the pressure points of life, don't they? They never come in what's easy and easy to get through. In this case, it was in the area of sustenance, you know, daily needs. Sometimes it's in the area of personal safety, which we'll see in a moment. Sometimes it's just simply preserving what's valuable to me. In many cases, the battle rages over my priority versus God's in my life. Pressure points. And it's because in each of these areas of life, we want to be in control. We feel the safest when we're in control, when we do what's natural, when we got our, you know, think we have our, our arms wrapped around our problem, when we have a solution. We like to be in control because that's the only time we feel safe. But what we often learn is that we're really not safe and we're really not in control. It's an illusion, isn't it? We can't keep our lives together, but we have an almighty, faithful God who can. And trials about, are about learning to trust Him in those pressure points of life, aren't they? Is he, <clears throat> these trials are a loving Father's means of bringing us to the place of rest and peace. You know, we, <coughs> excuse me, we mentioned a couple weeks ago that when trials come, we often like to ask why. Well, we know one reason why. God wants to teach us the futility of, of walking in the flesh and the joy of walking in independent faith in our God. And it comes from a loving Father's hand. And that's where peace is found. So often joy is missing in our lives because we've got, we think we have our arms wrapped around the problem instead of wrapping our arms around God and His Word and casting our care upon Him. You know, one of my pet peeves today is I walk into stores today and see all that stuff on the corner that says, calm. 
commercials on TV that says calm. And they're all that CBD stuff, aren't they? Calm. It's the world's way of bringing you calm. Well, that's not, how, that's not God's way. God brings calm. He brings peace. He brings rest. But it's only as we depend upon Him and trust Him. God can offer what the world can never offer, isn't it? And it's not about dulling ourselves with the pain like the world does through drugs and alcohol. It's about giving our pain to God. Letting Him deal with it. The Almighty God who's promised to carry us through life. So, first of all, we see here in regards to the should Abraham gone, gone to Egypt or not, well, we see, at least see that Abraham did not consider the Lord in this decision. The second thing we see in the Bible is Egypt has always, seems to always be a picture of the world and its attitudes. A picture of finding fulfillment, finding safety, finding security in this world's perspectives and way of managing life. It illustrates walking by sight rather than walking by faith. Let's turn and look at a couple passages so you can see this. Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14. You know, when we consider some of the types in the Old Testament, the analogies, we, we recognize, first of all, that Canaan is in reality the promised land, is in reality a picture of the Christian life. And, that, and, and so, well, some people, it was, isn't that a picture of heaven, Canaan? We sing songs about crossing over Jordan at funerals? No. No. You see, when Israel was to enter Canaan, they, they had to possess the blessings that God had given them. They had to walk by faith and find victory. Just like the Christian life today, Canaan's a picture of the blessings and bounty of the Christian life that we enter into when we win our victories by faith. Egypt, on the other hand, then, is a picture of the world, where Egypt used to live, what they were redeemed out of when God delivered them from Egypt. And here in Numbers 14, when God is about to bring them to the promised land, we find their response, their, their lapse of faith response to that directive to enter into the, into the promised land where the giants were, by the way. Verse 1 of chapter 14 says, all the, So all the congregation of Israel, that is, lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. Those are expressions of faith, aren't they? And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or only if we had died in this wilderness. Well, that's despair of worry, isn't it? Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword and our wives and our children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. The Egypt is a picture where they're redeemed out of and they forgot. There was leeks and garlics there, but they were in slavery there. They were subject to Pharaoh there. They were freely beaten by Pharaoh's, excuse me, Pharaoh's soldiers there. It was not the place of, of, of a beautiful life. And we forget that. And he just becomes a picture of the world and we think that living apart from God is, is uh, you know, all those commercials that portray such a wonderful and beautiful life in the world and all its behaviors. You see, they refuse to trust God to lead them to the land he had promised once again. They're on the brink. They sent spies in. And yet they panicked because they were not walking by faith. Isaiah chapter 30. Let's turn there. Isaiah chapter 30. Here in Isaiah chapter 30, the context is, is the potential attack and defeat of Israel by the, king, by the king of Assyria. 
and they want to escape that war. And go to Egypt. Verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, again saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the... Oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. Sorry, you're probably wondering where in the world I am. Didn't sound familiar, but Ezekiel is a long way from Isaiah. That's what happens when I try to preach and turn pages. I don't... That's a challenge. Okay, I'm with you now. Isaiah 30, verse 1. Woe to the rebellious, rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel, but not of me, and who devise plans but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin and walk to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. See, Egypt's a picture of the world. And here Israel, instead of trusting the Lord, wanted to go back to Egypt to trust in which represents our own wisdom, our own strength, our own devices. Verse 3 says, therefore the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame. And that's what the flesh does. It brings shame to our life, doesn't it? Jeremiah chapter 42. Jeremiah chapter 42. Another desire for Israel to go to Egypt for safety. Let's just in verses 1 through 6 of this chapter, Israel goes to the, excuse, the people of Israel go to the leaders to, to, to inquire of whether or not they could go to Egypt. Notice in verse 3, it says that the Lord your God may show us the way in which we should walk and the things we should do. And in verse 5, here it says, So they said to Jeremiah, Let the Lord be true and faithful witness between us if we do not do according to everything which the Lord your God sends us us by you. Verse 6, whether it be pleasing or displeasing, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we send you, that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. Now that's a great statement, but we find at the end of the chapter is that they didn't really mean it. They weren't sincere. God calls them hypocrites at the end of this, at the end of this chapter. Well, verse 7 says that it happened after 10 days that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, then he called Johanan the son of Korea, and all the captains of the forces which were with him, and all the people from the least even to the greatest, and said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your petition before him. If you will still remain in this land. And that's, a, that's, a, it's in, that's in the context of potential attack and defeat. But he says, If you'll stay in this land, then I will build you and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up. For I'll relent concerning the disaster that I have brought upon you. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. Do not be afraid of him, says the Lord, for I am with you to save you, deliver you from his hand. And I will show you mercy, that he may have mercy on you and cause you to return to your own land. But if you say, we will not dwell in this land, disobeying the voice of the Lord your God, saying, no, but we will go to the land of Egypt... Where we, where we shall see no war, nor hear the sound of the trumpet, nor, nor be hungry for bread. And there we will dwell. Then hear how the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, if you wholly set your faces to enter Egypt and to go dwell there, then it shall be that the sword which you feared shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt. 
The famine of which you were afraid shall follow close after you there in Egypt, and there you shall die. So it shall be with all the men who set their faces to go to Egypt to dwell there. They shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. And none of them shall remain or escape from the disasters I will bring upon them. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, My anger and my fury have been poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So will my fury be poured out on you when you enter Egypt. And you shall be an oath, an astonishment, a curse, and a reproach, and you shall see this place no more. The Lord has said concerning you, O remnant of Judah, do not go to Egypt. Know certainly that I have admonished you this day, for you were hypocrites in your hearts when you sent me to the Lord your God, saying, Pray for us to the Lord our, your God, and according to all the Lord your God says, so declare to us, and we will do it. And I have this day declared it to you, but you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord your God, nor anything which he has sent you by me. Now therefore know certainly that you shall die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence in the place where you desire to go to dwell. Well, this chapter begins with, with a parent's sincere request for God to bless their plans. That's really what their prayer request was. To hope God agreed with them and confirmed them. And that's what we often do. We often devise our own ways of safety, our own ways of preserving life, our own ways of running life and say, and then we go before God hypocritically and say, oh God, we want your will as long as it agrees with mine. And that's exactly what Israel did. And what happened? Destruction, death. Egypt is a picture of the world. It always is in the Old Testament. When ever Israel wanted to return to Egypt, it was a picture of a departure from a faith relationship with God. So Abram, looking to Egypt for preservation, was a lapse in faith. As we go back to Genesis chapter 12. And that's a challenge we face in life. We walk by faith or walk by sight. It seems to be the constant issue. It is the area of growth for us. And the question is, will we trust the Lord with our all? And experience the rest of trusting in God to carry out our burdens as opposed to depending on our own logic and strength. We live so much of our life in futility, frustration, fear, worry. When God says, just remember what he told Israel and Jeremiah, I am with you. It's a simple promise. I've got this, God says. And let him. And that's risky because we're all naturally control freaks. And to hand the controls over to God seems a risk. But God quickly proves that it is the greatest place of safety. So for Abraham, this first test concerned his sustenance, personal needs in life. This next test we come to concerns his safety. This is test number two in, in this section. When he comes to, he, he realizes as he gets close to Egypt that Pharaoh's going to want his wife, doesn't he? And what we really see here is the best or the worst of the flesh on display. This is not a faith reaction or response or way to manage his life as he entered Egypt in any way, shape, or form, is it? This is what walking by sight looks like. It's allowing our sin-tainted nature to lead the way in our lives. And this passage is all about self, self, self. And we see its expressions here. The first expression is the fear to begin with, the fear, the fear of being killed by Pharaoh. There's fear. 
Nowhere does he bring it to God. It's just simply fear. And this fear drives these other decisions. You know, sometimes our imaginations can overwhelm us with worry and fear when we let them run rampant. You know, we let our worries wander, so to speak, and they build and they build and they build. Somewhere along those lines, hopefully we return to the promises of God and the person of God and, this, and, and learn to give those things to God. So we see fear. We also see him, Abram scheming for his own preservation. With no view of the ability of God to keep, he came up with a plan for his own personal safety. But in doing so, he put himself first. That's what flesh does, doesn't it? Me first. There's no consideration of what can happen to Sarai. That's amazing. I tell you what, that's one submissive woman, it seems, or maybe a woman that wanted to get out of the caravan into the palace, I don't know. But either way, she went, but there's no view of what's going to happen to her. What about committing adultery? What about the violation of the marriage covenant? No consideration. There's no consideration of Pharaoh. Putting him, and putting him in that position. And there's absolutely no consideration of what was right before God. Self, self, self. That's the flesh. And that's what happens, and we don't realize it. When we come up with our own, our own machinery and, and plans and schemes to preserve our life, sometimes we have no thought about how it's going to affect others. And that's what the love of God does for us, by the way, when we consider Him. It helps us to consider how our lives affect others. And of course, we see lying. You know, but lying is sometimes justified, right? Isn't it sometimes okay? Isn't there situations where it's just the way out of embarrassment or, or trouble? That's never right, is it? God's a God of truth. And the expression of His Spirit through us is one of righteousness and truth. It's never right. It's the way of the world. It's the way to, it's just normal for people. And, and, and as believers, it's easy to go there whether it is just getting yourself out of a bad situation or stretching your fishtail, or whatever the case may be, it's never right, is it? See, Abram's best plan for survival displays the, fle the flesh at its very worst. And this is the father of the faith. Isn't that amazing? This is the example of faith the Bible gives us. But I believe Abram's failure here was recorded for us because it was part of his growing and learning process concerning the corruption and destruction of walking in the flesh. It's something we almost learn. We almost learn. In the middle of it all, God in his mercy kept it from going too far, didn't he? But through this, God, re God reminds us what happens when we fail to walk by faith. We fail to trust him. Maybe you've been there through the years. Some of you are close to my age. And maybe you've had friends, Christian friends through the years that you've warned the direction their lives are heading, warned them about maybe some potentially bad decisions, warned them about no longer going to church or reading God's Word, warned them about what's going to happen in life, and they think, not to me. They may not say it those words, I've got this. Oh, those things aren't going to happen to me. And they inevitably do. And years later, they come to you or you come across their paths and they say, I don't know what happened. That's what we do, isn't it? How did this happen to me? How did I get myself in a situation? And it goes all the way back, for a believer at least, to that time in our lives we, we chose not to trust the Lord. 
to walk our own way. Now, those people often still go to church, still appear to do right things, at least for a time. But God wants us to recognize the futility of walking in the flesh. And in Abraham, we see that we all fail. We all fail. We all fail the test. Way too often, don't we? We fail the test. And hopefully we learn. I think it was Erwin Lutzer who wrote the, wrote the book, Failure of the Backdoor to Success, that touches on this very concept. And it's not that we have to fail to learn. Ideally, we learn from reading the truth. And we don't go there. But inevitably, because of our rebelliousness and the independence of our hearts, we learn. And it's a normal process of growth, isn't it? As God proves to us our inability to control and keep our lives together. Well, Abram's found out, isn't he? Plagues are, are, are uh, sent upon Pharaoh. And they have to wonder what happened. You know, in my story, I don't know why God didn't plague Abram. It seems a whole lot more reasonable, doesn't it? You know what? But maybe he did. Maybe he's plagued in the heart, full of conviction and guilt. And he refused to respond. And God had to intervene before it was too late. I don't know how Pharaoh found out. Maybe they started putting two and two together when the plagues began, as maybe when Sarah entered into the house or whatever the case may be. It doesn't tell us. But what we do see, though, is God's grace towards Pharaoh to keep him from making a grave mistake, don't we? The tragedy of this story is that the unsaved knew better than the saved, you might speak. The world knew better than God's people and respected morality more than, as Pharaoh respected morality more than Abram did. And that's often the case with carnal Christians, unfortunately. When we express independence towards God and we begin to tolerate sin in our lives, we go further and further into sin. And we often, believers often go to depths that even the lost wouldn't go, and this is a picture of that. And that's why we, should, we need to be aware that that's all of us. That's the nature of our flesh. And that's why we need to live life dependent upon our God through, relationship, through a faith relationship with God through His Word. You know, those sins left unconfessed, and as the story goes on, we assume Abraham, Abraham made things right, but left unconfessed leads to hardness of heart spiritual callousness towards God. And that tends to spread. Remember the concept of leaven? Leaven spreads. Sin spreads. Calluses grow. And it spread to other areas of life. When we resist God in one area, it leads to another area of life. When we fail to walk by faith in this area, it leads to another area of life. And we end up walking around like one big callus, one big wrinkled callus, spiritual callus, not even aware. Because Abraham was obviously callous towards God, and so God dealt with, with Pharaoh in order to bring this situation to a reasonable end. You know, Wednesday night we talked a little bit about, I think it was, or was it men's Bible study maybe? I can't remember which one. We talked about living with a pure conscience, men's Bible study. And what does that mean? 1 Timothy 1.5 said, Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. What does that mean? It doesn't mean perfection. 
I mean, God understands. We're told in Psalm 103 that God knows we're flesh. We're going to fail. But what it means to have a pure conscience is to have dealt with sin. It's to have a clean slate. It's to follow the admonishment of 1 John 1, 9, to have our sins confessed before God in our relationship with Him. Because in our love relationship with Jesus Christ, when we sin, we offend Him. And God and, and, and our fellowship with Him is broken and our relationship is, is, is stressed and we need to make it right. And 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's not a salvation verse, that's a relational verse. And we need to make it right. And the glorious thing about that is God forgives and He cleanses and He restores. Isn't, isn't that glorious? He puts it behind us where we can gratefully then move forward and as Philippians 3 says, press towards the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I forget what's behind and I press forth to what's before. Now forgetting what's behind may, may, may not be exclusively referring to sins and failures. It may include other aspects of life, but it definitely includes past failures. And we cannot live in yesterday's defeats. That's why God tells us He forgives. He cleanses. And we need to accept that. And sometimes we don't like to accept that because we're too proud to admit it. we did it in the first place. But we need to admit in honesty before God, we need to accept His forgiveness, we need to rest in His mercy, and we need to enjoy His cleansing and restoration. And believe God means what He says. Now that's so unreasonable to us, but it's something God does in His grace. We don't deserve it, but He says, if you come clean before me, we'll put this behind us. That's what it means to have a pure conscience. And that's what God wanted from Abram. The mercy of God is so deep and so amazing and such a wonderful aspect of God and His love. I'm afraid some Christians never experience, or never experience the mercy of God and their relationship with God because they never come clean with their sin never honest with their failure, about their failures, never cast themselves in God's mercy. But when you do, what an amazing thing to, to realize that God forgives in our, in our relationship with Him. Not something to be abused by any means, but something to be enjoyed and rest in. Psalm 103, that wonderful chapter that mentions repeatedly God's mercy, says this in verse 4, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. Well, Abram, there after his caught in his lie and his scheme and his plan, he gets kicked out, doesn't he? He says, just get out of here. Take everything you got and get. Now that's a way to be a blessing, isn't it? Remember Abram's promise he was supposed to be a blessing? This is a wonderful way to be a blessing to Egypt, isn't it? <laughs> but that's how we are when we walk in the flesh because we're intended to be a blessing. The world's supposed to know us by our love and by our unity and by our righteousness. And, th and that light is supposed to shine. It's supposed to be a blessing. But the flesh brings ugliness to our lives, destroys God's testimony, and makes, makes these unsaved and want nothing to do with Christianity. And how many times have you heard that? Huh? Maybe you've heard people say it's so rare to find a sincere Christian. It's so rare to find a sincere church that isn't operating in the flesh. Abraham gets kicked out. And it's amazing, our God endures that reproach, doesn't he? That's the grace of God, isn't it? 
Well, what we do see here, not only is the mercy of God, God didn't disown Abram. It was part of his growth process as God does with us. But the one amazing, last amazing point here is we see the grace of God at work in this passage. And what I mean by that is notice in verse 16 that Pharaoh had given Abraham a lot. Sheep, oxen, male donkeys, female servants, everything, the whole package. He had enriched Abram in exchange for Sarai. He'd given him a lot of stuff. Abram's riches and his, and, his, and his caravan grew. He left with more than he, than he Egypt with more than he arrived with. God had enriched him at Pharaoh's expense. And Abram had wronged Pharaoh. And it says in verse 20, he left, at the end of the chapter, he left with all that he had. Well, he didn't deserve that. But God had enriched him through this process. What an amazing expression of the grace of God as God used this situation to grow his chosen family. You know, Ephesians 1.3 tells us that God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father. We don't deserve it. God has blessed us with the riches of His promises, the riches of a, stand, of a standing of acceptance in Christ, of forgiveness. We're children of the King. He's preparing a place for us. And we go on and on talking about the riches God has given to us, all in His grace. And we don't never deserve it. But that's what the grace of God is. The grace of God is, is expressed simply because God chooses to express it. God loves us because He chooses to love, not because we are so lovable. If we talk about deservedness, well, we'd all be in hell, wouldn't we? You see, in salvation, God gives forgiveness freely, doesn't He? We're justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It wasn't that God looked down on humanity and says, well, they're such beautiful people. You know, this, this person and that, I just, you know, I just can't, I just hate to see them go. No. Just like Israel, we saw in Deuteronomy that God set his love upon them because he chose to set his love upon them, not because they were innumerable people. So in salvation, God sets his love on us because he chooses to set his love on us. That's grace. It's fully and completely undeserved and unearned. And that's why in Hebrews eleven six. The, the Bible contrasts grace and works because works represents some aspect of earning our salvation, of deserving our salvation. And you're never going to stand before God and say, well, I did the best I can. And God says, so? Yeah? Have you considered my son? That's the best I've got. I gave my best for you. That's God's best plan. Jesus is the one who took care of the sin problem to remove the barrier between God and man so that we could be forgiven freely. And this grace is never bestowed because of our commitments, because of our good works, because of our faithfulness. Grace is given freely. In Romans eleven six, 6, it says salvation is either by grace or it's by works. It cannot, 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 cannot be both. They're two opposing principles. God gives grace freely. And that's why it's appropriated by faith alone. We're freely justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. By grace you are saved through faith, because the value of faith is zero apart from its object. Galatians 2.16 says this, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Do you believe the Bible's true? You're sitting here this morning, you came this morning, 
Hopefully not to hear me. Hopefully to open the Bible. Do you believe that's true? Wonderful, isn't it? Man is justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. How hard does God have to describe for us His grace? He works over and over and over again to describe to us salvation is free. It's because I love you, God says. I want to rescue you and save you that I sent my Son. And so it is in the realm of sanctification. See, God has provided all that we need for life and godliness according to 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4. He's given us promises to rest in for life's daily journey. He, Jesus himself freed us from sin at the cross. The Holy Spirit indwells us in order to teach us those promises and give us the strength to live them out in our lives. And God himself wants to walk with us and hold our hands and lead us through life. On top of all that, when we still refuse and reject and rebel and have a lapse of faith, he comes sometimes in discipline, sometimes in conviction, but comes to restore. He pursues us and then freely forgives and restores when we come to him, when we fail as Abram failed. Grace is wholly the choice and expression of the heart of God. It's given in spite of us, not because of us. And here Abram, in chapter 12, was dealt with in mercy and in grace. He didn't deserve that, absolutely not. I don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. But that's what the great God, that's the great God who we serve. That's a God that's, and that's how God deals with us in our daily lives. And God says, I just want you to learn to trust me. And so our journey in life is to be a journey of faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. We are to learn, as Abraham did in the first half of the chapter in his departure from Haran to the promised land, that God is able to keep his promises. And we are also to avoid but learn from the failures of the lapses of faith that you know, we just can't cut it on our own. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 says, Not that we're sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves. Our sufficiency is of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for your patience. With us, Father. Thank you that you, as a faithful Father, have promised to work in us until the day of Christ, and that work is to make us Christ like, to teach us to trust you, and to remind us the danger, the futility, the destruction that the flesh brings when we allow it to rule in our lives. Father, may we be quick to see our failures, sure to confess them, and Rejoice in the forgiveness and restoration that you give. Father, help us to learn to trust you. Help us to see, as First Peter told, told us in our scripture reading, that the trial of our faith is, is more precious because it teaches us to love the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, apply these things now to our hearts for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name.